Hi everyone, this is Peter Vantine at First Love Ministries. Thanks for tuning in to the First Love Podcast with Mark Fee. This week is part three of a series entitled God's Extreme Makeover. So let's get right to the message. Here's Mark. For those of you that are maybe tuning in online today, just let me give a quick summary. We're calling this series God's Extreme Makeover. And as you can see, on the one side is a house that definitely needs an extreme makeover. It's a mess, and in a certain way, that's how each of us, uh, the condition that we were in when God came to us, that our lives were a mess, broken, burnt out, ruined. And the cool thing about that Extreme Home Makeover show is that they don't just do enough to help the people and the family get by. They actually do something that's remarkable, and it's an extreme makeover. And the idea was the same for you and I, that God didn't just save us so that we could get by. God didn't just save us, as it were, to throw a little plastic in the windows, to throw a tarp over the top, just so you could get by. God saved you to make an extreme makeover of you. Now we realize that the joy of that show is the fact that it's not just that a house gets fixed, it's the fact that a family is under great stress, under great need, and their belief is is that if they fix up their home, it's going to help this family. Well, it's the same way as that the world is filled with families out there, human beings who are burnt out, messed up like this, who need us to be God's extreme makeover so that we can make a difference in their lives. We're not going to be able to do much if it's just a little patch here and a little patch there, and God knows that. So his desire is to make an extreme makeover of us. We talked last week about how the language of makeover, that he would sanctify us, that he would equip us, that he would make us complete. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that he would transform us or metamorphosis us. And what did that mean? What did it mean to be made into likeness? The extreme makeover is the likeness of Jesus. Those makeover words, but what is he making us into? He's making us into the likeness of Jesus. And what does that mean? And so we finished out last week talking about the fact that being made in the likeness of Jesus is first of all having our minds renewed, having them changed, that the lies and the deception and all that stuff taken out and truth put in, that hopefully in turn would make a difference in our passion. That our passion would be like Jesus, where in John 14, 31, he said, I want the world to know that I love the Father and that I do exactly what he commanded me. That that would be the passion that would come into our souls, not our self-interest passion. And that the result of that would be this character change, that our hearts, our lives, our inner being would manifest those things of gentleness and kindness and humility and patience, and that it would work itself out into a God-like love. And then finally, that we would change, that God would work a change in the skills that we have, that when we run into human beings, that we are actually equipped and we have the same skills Jesus did to communicate the message, to do good and to heal the sick, whether it's physical or internal. And the whole reason God did all this is because it's his pleasure, his joy to do so, is that there is no greater pleasure God gets than seeing you become who you were made to be. Isn't it cool that that actually gets God's heart fired up? But isn't that what you ache for your children, for those of you that are parents? You want to see your kids become what they were made to be. And in the end, we finally looked at the communion table and said, here's what God's invested into this makeover project. What investment will we make? Now today, I want to pick up another one of those verses, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. 
Because the challenge in all of this is regardless of how much God wants to do this in our lives and is committed to doing this in our lives, there is a part we have to play. See, this is the big hitch. Unlike a house, or if we use the potter's wheel illustration, is that a house and a piece of clay can't get off the wheel. The house can't move and say, ah, I'm not really interested in being fixed, thank you very much. The problem with doing an extreme makeover with you and I is we can get off the wheel. We can say, ah, I don't want to, or just walk away. It takes us too. And here's the verse where we get that from. Philippians 2, 12, 13. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Or as I showed you last week, really, I think the English Standard Version says it better. It's for the sake of his good pleasure. It's because it brings him great delight to see the transformation in us and to see the effect on the other people around us is why he's doing this. It brings him joy. It brings us joy too. Well, what does that phrase mean, work out your salvation? Well, let's look at what it doesn't mean first. What it doesn't mean is working out our salvation as though salvation were something that needed our work in order for it to be accomplished. In other words, this doesn't have anything to do about that belief in what God did for us through Christ. And when we believe, we get rebirthed and we get saved. The salvation that he's referring to here has to do with once you are saved, there should be this change in us. And he says, there's a part that you have to work out in that. You have to apply yourself. You have to do something. We have to work at this thing. We have to cooperate with God. Now, what does this work look like? Now, sometimes we can just work really hard, but work wrongly or work poorly or work with the wrong focus. As I was praying and thinking about this, it made me think of really my schooling days all the way through college. See, my understanding that the reason I went to school was to get A's so I could bring a report card home and my father and mother would be really proud of me. I had no idea I was there to learn anything. That's the truth. The saddest thing is I took that mentality into college. I knew how to get A's on tests. I knew how to get A's on papers. Then I'd sell my books and buy the next books for the next class. And it wasn't until my senior year that I'm sitting there in the bleachers with this diploma that says I'm supposed to have learned something. And I went, oh no, all I did was got a 3.4. In what? And sometimes I think church. Sometimes our Christian walk has almost been like that, that we think the working at it is that we just show up on, a, on some certain amount of Sundays. Maybe we attend a Bible study. Maybe we do a little thing to help serve or whatever. But we forget the fact that everything we're doing is about God doing this extreme makeover in our lives. That the point was I supposed to be doing the Christian ed major so that I could be a good college and career pastor. I thought it was so that my mom and dad would go, excellent job, son. I missed the point. It's almost like the same way that sometimes you and I can be doing the church thing, coming to church on Sundays, listening to a sermon, occasionally be involved in some study thing, but at the end of the day, we think that all that work was about finally showing the report card to God and say, look, see what I did? And I did good at it. And the Lord said, you missed the point. 
you weren't doing all that stuff so that you could work hard at it to get a good grade so at the end I'll pat you on the back. The reason you're supposed to be doing all that is so that you could be made over extremely into the likeness of Jesus so that you can go out into the world and do something. Oh, <laughs> right? I mean, we can really work hard and miss the point. Well, what does the workout salvation mean actually in this text? What's happening in this church where Paul says, work it out, work out your salvation? Well, we have a few scriptures that give us a clue. Earlier in that same chapter, verses three and four, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then later in verse 14, he says, do everything without complaining or arguing. And then in 4.2, he addresses these two specific women who were key co-laborers with him in the church. And he says to them, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. So it seems like even though they'd come to believe that they've been saved, somehow that salvation, that extreme makeover hadn't been working to the effect that there was still this residue in them that they were somehow finding themselves with selfish ambition, with vain conceit, that they were looking more to their own interests than to the interests of others, that they were arguing and complaining and they weren't getting along. Isn't that tough that that's what goes on in church? Because see, the problem is we come in looking like that first house. There's a lot of work to be done. And I'm telling you, it's not about just coming to church and listening to some things and then going home and forgetting about it. There's a way to work that will actually change us. And there's some work that we do that I don't think is nearly as effective. So Paul says to them, don't be this way. Don't have that selfish ambition. Don't have that vain conceit. Don't argue and complain, get along. And I could only imagine them answering though and saying, Paul, we know that's not like Jesus. We know that's not the way we're supposed to be, but we are. And whatever it is we're doing, we want to work at it, but we're working at it, but we're not changing. What's the problem? In fact, I've been <clears throat> reading this really fascinating book and as slow as I can to, so that I can get it. It's called Escaping the Matrix. But there's a few parts of it that I want to share with you because I think you're going to be able to relate. Listen to this. The Bible says you're more than a conqueror in Christ, yet after 20 years of being a Christian, you still can't control your lust. Why is that? The Bible says you've been filled with a spirit-inspired, glorious joy that is beyond expression. Yet though you've spiritually matured in many ways, you still struggle with depression. If what God says is true, how can that be? The Bible says you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, a truth you've believed for years that you still back down from confrontation, even though it allows others to walk all over you. Why is this? For a decade you've believed the biblical truth that you've been given a spirit of power, love, and self-control, yet you still fear rejection and lose control with anger about as often as you did before you were a Christian. What aren't you getting? For as long as you can remember, you've accepted the biblical truth that you are holy and redeemed in Christ, yet you still sin in the same areas and maybe even to the same extent as you did before, and you likely live part of your life in shame because of it. What explains this? 
You know that in Christ you are called and empowered to love all people, even your enemies, yet you fear and avoid people who belong to a certain ethnic group. You know your lack of love is not of God, yet you seem to have no power to change. Where is the transforming power of the gospel? Have you ever felt that way? What is it about this transformation, Lord, that you're doing? What is it about this work, this sanctifying me through and through that I'm missing and not getting? Why do sometimes I feel more like that building that actually has just some patchwork on it instead of this extreme makeover that I am really changed and really different? Well, I think there's several things. One of the things is, is that I think we don't do a really good job in the work of transformation about how we put the truth in us. And that's what I'm going to address next week. I think another thing is, is that like I said, we just don't give time to it. We don't work at it. But today what I want to address, and that is this, is that in this book, and I think they're absolutely right, is that I think one of the biggest problems is that we really don't understand how our minds work, how our brains work, and consequently we're not doing the best things to change them, to renew them. See, what is true about our minds, about our brains, is that everything that we have in them has been brought in in the form of experience. And that experience becomes a memory, and that memory has images, images that, that even still have our senses attached to them, our five senses. But then they also have thoughts and beliefs and meaning, and they also have emotions connected to them. A simple illustration they said in the book was, what's in the back seat of your car? Can you find it? Now, I am 100% sure that not one of you, when you went to go back to find out what was in your car, you saw in your mind, like on a computer screen, words written out that said, volleyballs, a stale sandwich, and rotten socks. Right? None of you saw words that told you what was in the back seat of your car. What happened when you went to find out what was in the back seat of your car? You had a memory, didn't you? You actually went back to a memory. You went back to the moment that you last looked in the back seat of your car. And it might have been outside, it might have been turning back, it might have been cleaning. And the truth is, is that it also has sight, it has smell, it has, might have texture. The way God designed us is that these memories get installed, implanted in us. And then in the miracle of our minds, all the positive ones, see, we can access those and they function automatically, but what we don't recognize is how many of those function automatically and the stuff that was input to us was painful and was full of lies. And the thing is, is that what these guys are saying about the brain is that this stuff can happen in fraction of a second. Where it says one of the primary ways Satan keeps us in bondage is to install memories that contain painful lies. Under the right triggers, traumatic experiences of the past are automatically and in a fraction of a second re-experienced in vivid holographic manner. Believing then that the makeover, the extreme makeover into the likeness of Jesus is that is his truth finally actually gets installed into our minds that it's going to have a ripple effect, that it will change our passion and our desires so that we really will say like Jesus did, that I love the Father and I want to do exactly what he commanded me to do. 
and that it would begin to do this transformation of our character, both our attitudes and actions, you know, our attitudes so that we are compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and patient and certain actions that look so much like the Lord. And, and then lastly is that it would also translate into certain kinds of skills, activity stuff that we do, that we're able to communicate the message, do good, pray for the sick. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like more information or to hear more podcasts, you can check out our website at www.firstloveministries.org. And Mark will be back with his regular podcasts in a few weeks. Have a great day and God bless. Mm-hmm.